Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of Messianic Judaism for all nations. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. When the Romans were torturing Rabbi Akiva to death, he cried out, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. He was the first, so far as we know, to say the Shema at the moment of death. And he explained that giving one's life in martyrdom for the sake of sanctifying God's name is the fulfillment of the words of the Shema with all your soul. As it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, to die for God is to love the Lord with all your soul. What does it mean to love God with all your soul, with all your nefesh? In this context, nefesh should be understood as one's life in that you are willing to give up your nefesh, that is, to give up your life for the sake of your love for God. There's three ways that we express loving God with all your soul. Number one is called preshut, asceticism. Separation from the worldly, separation from things that have even the appearance of sin, that is, going beyond the letter of the law to distance oneself from sin, breaking addiction, self-control, this sort of thing. Number two is called inui nefesh, that is, fasting for the sake of heaven, from the, from the flesh, for the sake of prayer, abstinence for the sake of prayer, delayed gratification, ruling over the impulses of the Yetzirah and refusing to let them rule us, uh, not just for the sake of character development, but for the sake of heaven. And then number three is called Kiddush Hashem, that is martyrdom, Miseret Nefesh, uh, being willing to accept danger, persecution, abuse, harassment, embarrassment, public shaming, and even martyrdom for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of sanctifying God's name. It's the third one that I want to look at today. As we come up on Lagba Omer, we come to the end of a period of time the Jewish world observes as a minor as, as minor days of mourning over the death of the disciples of Rabbi Akiva. Moreover, Lagba Omer is a celebration of the life of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who was hunted by the Romans and had to flee to the hills to conceal himself in a cave where he lived with his son in hiding. So today we're going to review the idea of Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name. It's one of the commandments in our Torah portion, and it's something that the disciples of Yeshua should always be thinking about. It's the commandment to accept martyrdom when necessary, to avoid profaning God's name. Thanks to Islam, martyrdom has a negative connotation. Muslim terrorism has co-opted the word to mean something, someone who undertakes a suicide mission or one who dies while fighting on God's behalf or one who dies while carrying out an act of terrorism, one who dies for God in a holy war, or one who dies while spilling innocent blood. That's not what martyrdom is about. That's chilul Hashem, not kiddush Hashem. That's profaning God's name, not sanctifying God's name. Ironically, Rabbi Akiva was not really a martyr merely for the sake of sanctifying God's name either. He was sentenced to death as a revolutionary who had actively participated in an armed uprising against Rome, 
declared a false messiah, and helped foment the Bar Kokhba revolt. Rabbi Akiva's death, in my opinion, does not qualify as a true Kiddush Hashem. He died as an insurrectionist, the very crime for which our master was falsely accused before Pilate. Akiva was not a martyr in the truest sense of the word. A true Kiddush Hashem, a true martyrdom, occurs when a person suffers or dies simply for his or her confession of faith. Originally, in the Greek language, the word martyr did not mean terrorist or suicide bomber, but neither did it mean victim of religious persecution who dies for his convictions. Instead, the Greek word marturio means to be a witness, affirming that one has seen or heard or experienced something like a witness called in a court of law. The Hebrew equivalent is aid, ayandalit. In that sense, all apostles were designated as witnesses because Yeshua chose them to testify about his resurrection and to proclaim the message of the gospel. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for God has raised this man from the dead to be the judge of the living and the dead. In the early days of our faith, in the late 60s of the first century, The Roman government declared allegiance to Yeshua of Nazareth to be an illegal superstition. In the early days of our faith, in the late 60s of the first century, the Roman government declared allegiance to Yeshua of Nazareth to be an illegal superstition. As a result, believers suffered state-sponsored persecution for the next several centuries, People suspected or accused of being part of this superstition were summoned to face a Roman tribunal. As our master said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he should become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. Just as he stood trial before the tribunal of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, his disciples and those early generations of believers found themselves standing trial before similar tribunals in Judea and throughout the Diaspora, even in Rome itself. And they were asked to publicly renounce the name of Yeshua, to blaspheme his name, and then prove their disavowal by offering worship before an idol, usually an idol of Caesar. Those who refused to do so were called witnesses, that is, martyrs, because they testified regarding their allegiance to Yeshua of Nazareth, they testified regarding his resurrection from the dead, and regarding their faith in in the God of Israel. And because they refused to disavow his name, and because they testified to his name, they were put to death. Eventually, The semantic meaning of the word martyr began to shift among believers from one who testifies to one who is put to death for the sake of his testimony. So the original Christian sense of the word martyr does not refer to one who dies in a holy war or while carrying out some act of violence in the name of God. Instead, it refers to one who dies for refusing to abandon his confession of Yeshua It reminds me of the story of Polycarp, a second-generation disciple who knew the Apostle John. When he was brought before the tribunal, an old man full of years, the proconsul felt sorry for him and said, Consider your advanced age. 
swear an oath by Caesar and say, away with the atheists, which is what they called us, and reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me an injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? This is what the master expects of his disciples. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. That is to say, we should not be worried about suffering physical harm in this world. We should worry about the consequences of denying him. He says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That is to say, if you are faithful to testify about me before men, I will reciprocate by testifying on your behalf in the heavenly court in the hour of the final judgment. He says, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Which is to say, He who is unwilling to suffer and die for my sake is not worthy of being my disciple. And he says, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Which is to say, If you deny me to save your life, you will forfeit the resurrection. But if you die for my sake, you will live again. The early believers understood the cost of becoming a disciple the cost of their life. The majority of the Master's twelve disciples died as martyrs, and hundreds, and then thousands, of their disciples did as well. The early believers understood the cost before they confessed Yeshua's name. It was one of the criteria they agreed to before becoming a disciple, before receiving immersion, I believe. They had to be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the name of the Master. In today's world, this is not a great selling point. Not part of the American gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not something that Campus Crusade states clearly in their evangelistic tracts. It's not something Billy Graham mentioned very often in his crusades. And why do they call those things crusades? Holy wars. It's the equivalent of calling your your ministry the Campus Jihad for Christ, or the Billy Graham the Billy Graham Jihad. I vaguely remember the first time I ever really considered this notion of being expected to die for the name of Messiah. It was in the late 1970s. I was 10 years old or so, I think. There was a film in the Thief in the Night series which depicted the Christians in the Great Tribulation, beheaded for their faith, as it says in Revelation 24. Those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. This got me worried. I realized that the alternative meant accepting the mark of the beast and the subsequent eternal damnation, but I wasn't sure I had the resolve to face my own beheading or that of my family members if we should be put to the test. But the films assured us we didn't need to worry about it so long as we were ready for the rapture because the Christians were going to be raptured off the earth before the persecutions of the tribulation began. 
According to this ridiculous idea, which is still prominent in American evangelicalism, Jesus is supposed to conduct an airlift evacuation before the Great Tribulation begins, evacuating the born-again Christians to heaven, where they can wait out the Tribulation without being martyred until they return with Jesus in the actual Second Coming. According to the rapture idea, the Christian martyrs of the Tribulation will be people like the Jews, who will become Christians after the rapture, those who were left behind. Hence the name of the films, Left Behind. Back in those days, we heard very little about the very real suffering of Christians around the world that was already well underway. We didn't know that we were actually living in the era of the greatest persecution of disciples of Jesus that had ever existed. We didn't realize the Great Tribulation was already underway all around us. We did not know what had happened to the Armenian Christians under the Turks. We did not know about what had happened to the Russian Orthodox and other faithful Christians under communism in Eastern Europe. We knew very little about what happened to the Christians of China after the revolution. I did not know believers in China were still being rounded up like cattle, imprisoned, beaten, put to death, and, and even to this very day, persecution in China continues. Moreover, we were largely unaware of the suffering of the Jewish people. In the 1970s, the Holocaust simply was not on our radar, and we knew nothing of the historical persecution of the Jewish people at the hands of Christians. We didn't know about the Crusades, when the whole Jewish, popula whole Jewish population centers were wiped out, when crusader, crusaders closed up synagogues filled with people and, and, and set them ablaze in the name of Christ. We did not know about the Inquisition and the rivers of Jewish blood that the church had spilt. And we did not know the scope of suffering that the Jews of Europe had endured during the war. And we did not know that under communism, Jews were dying, as they always had, for the sake of the sanctification of the name of Hashem. Today, I hope, the church in this country is better educated. Thanks to the work of ministries like Voice of the Martyrs, and thanks to the work of Holocaust memorial societies and even Hollywood films, people are more familiar with these issues. But the bloodletting has scarcely abated. In recent years, we saw the fate of the Christians of Syria and the Christians of Iraq, who perished under the atrocities of the so-called Islamic State, burning churches and demanding Christians to recant their faith in Christ and become Muslim. Those who refused were beheaded or crucified, cruelly tortured. Men, women, and children suffered and died for the sake of the name of Christ. Thousands have died. Tens of thousands were displaced. This is not something that happened half a century ago. It happened in the last decade or so. In, in most Muslim countries today, there are no Jews. And if anyone becomes a Christian, they will be persecuted. All of that is to say that we live a fairly insulated life of privilege in this place, in this day and age. But that's not normal. It's not normal for devoted disciples of Yeshua to be free of persecution, and it's not normal for Jewish people to be free of persecution. It's also abnormal for disciples like us, who believe the way we believe, to be free of persecution from the church. 
we are living in unusual times, but it's safe to say they aren't going to last forever. All the prophets and all the apostles and all the sages predict that before the kingdom comes, there will be a time of persecution and tribulation. Yeshua said, A time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. We need to raise our children with this knowledge and conviction. To die for one's faith is called Kiddush Hashem. It's based on the verse in our Parsha, Leviticus 22.32, that says, You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. We derive two commandments here. One, not to profane the name of God, and two, to sanctify the name of God. To profane God's name is the exact opposite of sanctifying God's name. What does it mean to profane God's name? It means to treat God's name as non-holy. Conversely, what does it mean to sanctify the name of God? Judaism teaches this concept as a matter of upholding God's reputation. As God's people, our actions and behaviors reflect on him and affect his reputation. If we act in a holy manner, befitting children of God, we sanctify his name. In the early 2nd century, Roman inquisitors required both Jews and believers to renounce Hashem and worship idols, eat unclean meats, and blaspheme the name of God or the name of Messiah. During those days, when a terrible persecution raged against both Jews and believers, the sages met in an upper room in Lydda to discuss the question of being coerced to sin or coerced to blaspheme. They were considering the question, when the Romans say, commit this sin or die, is one required to sacrifice his life or is it permissible to commit a sin to save your life? And they discussed the matter and they resolved by a majority vote in the upper room in the house of Nitza in Lydda that if a man is commanded, transgress this commandment and you will be spared, he may transgress and avoid suffering death except in the case of idolatry, sexual immorality, or murder. This ruling was based on two verses. On the one hand, the Torah says in Leviticus 18.5, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. It says he should live by them, not die by them. So this allowed the sages to be lenient. On the other hand, there are limits, limits to this leniency. Because the Torah also says, You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. So to commit an act of idolatry, sexual immorality, or murder defames God's name. It's a bridge too far. What is more, any commandment, no matter how insignificant, that a Jew is forced to break publicly for purposes of defaming God's name is considered chilul Hashem and a person should be willing to die rather than transgress under such circumstances. For example, under ordinary circumstances, a Jewish person is allowed to eat the meat of an unclean animal for the sake of saving his life if he was starving, for example. 
even if his persecutor forces him to eat under threat of death, he could do so so long as he was not being made a public example. But if it was a public example, that would constitute profaning God's name, and he would rather have to choose death to sanctify God's name than eat the unclean meat. So the ruling is that when in times of persecution a tyrant attempts to force a person to commit a transgression publicly, to renounce his faith, or to blaspheme God, the person must rather sacrifice his life than comply with the tyrant's demands. One who capitulates and publicly transgresses, renounces, or blasphemes God's name, profanes God's name. In a public situation like this, the commandment not to profane the name of God requires us to sacrifice our lives rather than capitulate to the demands of our persecutors. Moreover, the commandment to sanctify the name of God means that we are obligated to maintain our faith without fear of persecution. Even if our persecutors attempt to force us to deny God, we must submit to death rather than submit to coercion, ready to lay down our lives if necessary. In this light, the commandment to sanctify the name of God is understood as the obligation to accept persecution and martyrdom for the sake of God's name. The Talmud explains, They ruled according to the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, for Rabbi Eliezer quoted the verse in the Shema that says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. When the Shema is written out in Hebrew, in the Torah, or in a Siddur, the last letter of the word Shema, which is Ayin, is enlarged. And so is the last letter of the word Echad, which is Dalit. I'm sure the scribes had some good reason for enlarging those letters. In the case of the Dalit, they probably wanted to make sure we didn't read a resh there, which might make it sound blasphemous. But it's interesting to me that if you take these two enlarged letters together, ayin and Dalit, they spell the word aid, the Hebrew word for witness, the Hebrew equivalent of the word martyr. And ever since the death of Rabbi Akiva, it's been customary for those Jews facing death under persecution to recite the Shema as they give up the nefesh, to die as a witness to the oneness of God, a witness with the witness of the oneness of God upon their lips. When saying the Shema morning and evening, it should remind the Jewish person of who he is or who she is, witnesses to the one God. That's a job that belongs to all of us. We are testifying about the one God. We are willing to be martyrs for his namesake. Does it seem like a terrible thing that God would ask this of us, that we should be willing to give our lives to sanctify his name, that we should be willing to give our lives and the lives of those we love to testify our allegiance to his son? We would not hesitate to lay down our lives for our loved ones. A mother would not hesitate to give her life for her children, a father for his children, a husband for his wife, a wife for her husband. For those we cherish, we would gladly sacrifice ourselves, which makes sense. And if we truly love God with all our hearts, souls, and might, we would not sacrifice less for him. This is the essence of what the Master means when he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
He who loves wife and children or brothers and sisters, yes, even his own nephesh more than me, cannot be my disciple. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I do not know if we are worthy of him. I do not know if I am worthy of him. And hopefully, we will never be tested on that point. But at the same time, it should not surprise us if we are one day. And this test can come in more ways than one. A person who is willing to die for Hashem by implication should also be willing to live for him. And sometimes that might be the more difficult of the two. We should not be surprised if we face persecution for the sake of the name of the Master. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks to the moral inversion of the last several decades, religious persecution is already underway in that people with our religious convictions can now legally be discriminated against, passed over for jobs and opportunities, and publicly maligned. This is the lightweight stuff, but it's heading in a certain direction. So we should not be surprised if we are asked to suffer for our master's name or even to lose our lives for his name. After all, We are disciples of Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering Messiah. You cannot be a disciple of the suffering Messiah and expect that you should never have to suffer. The whole New Testament from one end of the other rings with this message. Disciples suffer for the sake of the name of the Master. Whether we are reading about the early persecutions under the Sadducees, or sufferings of the apostles, or the persecutions under Rome in the book of Revelation, or the suffering of the saints in the tribulation. From one end to the other, the New Testament warns us over and over that the path of discipleship is a path of suffering. For a disciple is not above his teacher. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. And our teacher endured the cross for our sake. So we should not be surprised when we are called upon. Instead, we should rejoice for the opportunity to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your nephesh. But it's not suffering for the sake of suffering, nor is it martyrdom merely for the sake of martyrdom. The apostles referred to these sufferings in this age as momentary light affliction. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And learn from it And find rest for your soul